So I don't know if you know this or not, but being a part of Chapel, you are part of the Shoals Dream Center, which is just across the street, which is the model we got uh, from the Los Angeles Dream Center. If you want to see ministry done at such a high level, just go to the LA Dream Center website, and you'll see they do 24-7 ministry in Los Angeles, homeless ministry, rehab ministry, outreach ministry, you name it, they do it. And so we have a, a smaller scale model, which is what we call the Shoals Dream Center. And there's, there's three kind of main priorities for us. One, it is feeding those who need food in our area, because generational poverty is extremely high in the shoals. And one of our solutions is to make sure they have exactly what they need today to make it another day. Two, Dream Center Academy, which is an after-school program for at-risk uh, or under-resourced students in the area. And right now, how many students we have? 20, 22 students there. They come three days a week, and we have interns from UNA that are education majors, also interns that are social work majors, and the interns in education, mentor, tutor, and reteach the curriculum one-on-one to every single student. We've seen kids go from D's and F's to A, B, honor roll. The social work students mentor them, have family time, teach them social, emotional, and learning skills and behavioral skills to help them. And we also do Adopt-A-Block, which is today. And so you are part of everything that goes on over to the Shoals Dream Center. So I want to say thank you to you, but also thank you to our, some of our employees and volunteers. If you're an employee or a volunteer at the Dream Center, just raise your hand up real high. All the room. Give them a big round of applause, real quick. They, I tell you, if you ever go over there, and you can go over there anytime you want to, just stop by, say, hey, I'm part of chapel. I just want to see what goes on over here. They'll walk you through, and you'll see this is not just a, a, a business, it's a ministry. And it's, they create a family atmosphere and attitude when they're over there. And so I just want to say thank you in lots of ways. One, for your support, but two, who wants a Shoals Dream Center t shirt? Raise your hand. Ooh, if I can throw it that far. They're not romantic. Who, who else? Ah. So you saw the update from Pastor Jimmy Hayes. We are serving groceries, not just like, I, I've been part of ministries before. They did a food bank where it was basically there's a closet with some rice and some beans in it. If you need help, they give you, you know, a little bag of groceries. Here, they get to shop for their own groceries. They get a voucher and they'll go through our little boutique grocery store and they'll shop for their own goods. They have meat, dairy, produce, the whole nine, because we want to add value because we're trying to break a generational poverty mentality. And so it's an amazing thing. And so you can help, obviously, by serving at Adopt-A-Block, which is our third primary ministry, but also serving. If you have a chance to volunteer, you know you can go on the website and volunteer, but also by giving. And so as you leave today, you can drop an offering in those offering buckets. Just write Shoals Dream Center on the bottom of the check. All that money will go to them. Two, the food donations. We've never really done that before. The reason we're doing that is because in the, all the supply chains, food is very hard to get. And so it's increasing the need, but also decreasing the supply. And so you bringing that today helped a lot. But the best gift you can give the Souls Dream Center is we are looking for monthly partners. If you could just do $25 a month, when you go online or you do that QR code or you text that number, you can set up a monthly donation, 5, 10, 15, whatever it may be for you. But that gift, our goal is to have 1,000 $25 a month partners. And if we could get that in the shoals, we're working with tons of other churches and ministries. If we can get that, it changes the game for what we can do in ministry there. But if you would just join me in prayer for the Shoals Dream Center. Father, we thank you so much just for trusting us with such an incredible ministry, a ministry that loves, encourages, gives help, and gives hope to so many people in our area that have such an incredible needs. And right now, Father, we pray for every client that comes through the doors. That when they come, Father, maybe embarrassed to have a need or they come worried or concerned, Father, we pray they walk into a place of hope, that that place is saturated with your spirit. And Holy Spirit, you become their comforter and their encourager. Father, I pray for the volunteers and the employees, that you use them as instruments of heaven here in the shoals to bring heaven down to earth. And Father, we just pray that you continue to increase the ministry, increase partnerships and giving and volunteers, and let it be the impact that it's always been at a higher level than ever before. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. We start a new series today called Influencers. And we're going to unpack over the next few weeks what it means to be an influencer in society, what it looks like to be a minister in the marketplace, what it means to take what you learn in here and apply it outside at your job, at your house, at your family, at your school, wherever it may be. Because I believe God is raising the standard of the influence of the church. And influence is different. My kids are, are on TikTok and Snapchat and all that. And I hate all of that, to be honest. But there are some people that are highly influential. We were Pastor Tyler Sturman a couple weeks ago. They're, they've reached over a million people on TikTok. 
And so God is using these things. And so if you'll throw that graphic up there, there's influencers that are really shaping the game. Cristiano Ronaldo has 627 million followers. And Justin Bieber's mustache has 505 million followers. And you keep going, 408 million for The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, and on and on. These people, other people are looking to them for influence in their lives. Could you imagine 627 million people looking to a soccer player to influence them in their lives? You have people like Jake and Paul Logan who make $63 million a year off social media influence. Charlie D'Amelio, who's an American social media person, basically started doing dances, has millions of followers, is making $20 million a year influencing young people and teenagers with their culture they're trying to set. And so what is influence? It's the capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something. So it means if you have influence, you can affect the character of other people. I promise you those people... On TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram, Twitter, they're affecting the character of their followers. Affect the development of people. Meaning you, you can develop them, you can decrease their development, you can increase, you can stifle it, you can encourage it. But also their behavior. And so influence is something that you have in you that you can sway other people to your culture or your ideology or your philosophy or your kingdom. And so to be an influencer is someone that in your niche or in your area, you have the ability to influence other people. It's that simple. That everyone in this room has an area in your life where you have some type of influence. You say, well, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. You have influence in your household over young kids. Well, you know, I'm just a factory worker. You have influence with the people that you work with and the people you clock in with and the people you clock out with. Well, I'm, I'm a shut-in. I stay at my house. Well, you have influence with your neighbors. Well, I'm at, a, I'm at a nursing home. You have influence with the staff and influence with the other people in the nursing home. Everyone here has influence. And so the question would only be, are you leveraging your influence for the kingdom of God or are you not? Are you leveraging your influence to advance God's kingdom or, to, or as we pray, to bring heaven down to earth or using your influence to bring heaven into other people's lives or are you not leveraging or are you being influenced by others more than you're influencing them? And there's 12 domains of society. Dave Buring, an author, came up with these 12. You've heard of the seven mountains and all these other 12 domains. If you put those 12 domains up, we're going to walk through these all month long. But these are 12 areas that every single person in this room is in one of these areas, and you have influence in these areas. Family and social services, meaning I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a stay-at-home dad, or just my family, or foster care, orphanages, social work, church and missions, government, law, and national security, police officers, firefighters, etc., education and students, print, digital, and social media, arts, entertainment, and sports, business and commerce, science and technology, health, medicine and wholeness, environment and agriculture, nonprofit and surface organizations, and specific people groups. Everyone in this room fits in one of those 12 domains. By the end of the month, I pray and I hope that you look at your domain as an area that you can grow in influence and you look at it as I'm a missionary to my family area. I'm a missionary as a police officer, I'm a missionary as a teacher. I'm a missionary in social media. I'm a, I'm a missionary in sports. I'm a missionary in my business. I'm a missionary in science. I'm a missionary as a nurse or a doctor. I'm a missionary as a farmer and environmental stuff. I'm a missionary in my not-for-profit. I'm a missionary to certain people groups. God has placed you somewhere to use you and leverage you. And my goal in the next few weeks is to inspire you, encourage you, to motivate you, and challenge you to bring heaven to earth wherever God has placed you. How could you impact that nation? By influencing those 12 domains, impacting or influencing your domain. How do you influence domains? By shaping godly leaders who live their lives intentionally to impact the lives of other people. How do you shape godly leaders? By cultivating a disciple-making culture where everyone's continually growing in their gifts, growing in their maturity, and allowing God to use them for his purposes. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, to kind of help you understand what we're trying to accomplish as influence, you have to realize God did not establish the church 
to just be a gathering place on Sunday. He did not establish the church just to be a place of worship on Sundays. He didn't establish the church as a Bible training center. He didn't just establish the church as a place to have some good potlucks to the glory of God. He did not establish the church just as a place for classroom training or kids ministry or even missions ministry. You have to understand that Jesus established the church to be an influencer of heaven on earth. That was the sole purpose. And in Matthew 16, you see it so clearly. It says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Everybody say church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a binding and loosing to bring heaven to earth and to stop things on earth from impacting the people of heaven. Jesus established the church, and what's amazing about the scripture is the location in which he's teaching this to his disciples and the word he uses for church. So the location, this is in Caesarea Philippi, which is obviously where Mount Hermon is. And so Mount Hermon is this location that as he's saying these things to the disciples at Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi, it would have provoked them as this sinister place. It'd be like going to a haunted house and talking about pushing back the darkness around you. And so it has this place. Mount Hermon was a place that they believed the Nephilim came from Satan and began to divinely make sons and daughters with demonic figures. Mount Hermon's also a place where the Baal was worshipped in the Old Testament. That was the main place of worship for Baal. And so they'd come and they'd worship Baal. When Israel was turned away from God, they'd come to Mount Hermon instead of Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. They'd come to Mount Hermon and they'd worship Baal and Ashtaroth. And it's this place where these evil kings had set up. And so they actually viewed these two evil kings as guarding the doors to the gateways of hell. And so the disciples would know this was referred to as the entry place into the underworld. And you take that, the Jewish shot, the Romans had also used Mount Hermon as a place dedicated to the god Zeus. And the god Zeus was worshipped there. And so there's all these Jewish and Roman and secular things coming together that if you throw the picture up there, this big cave is actually where they thought was the gateway or the gates to hell itself. And if you see all these other little doors, those were other Romans or pagans put up their gods to worship at the same place. And so you had the Baal that was worshipped on Mount Hermon. You had the Nephilim that resided on Mount Hermon. You have Zeus who dwelt on Mount Hermon. And all these hundreds of other pagan gods. And they're sitting here. And so all of them believed this was the entryway or the gates to the underworld of whatever the religion is. I'm not the smartest man in the world. But if every religion in the known world thinks that's the gateway to hell, it may just be the gateway to hell. And so Jesus is having this conversation with them. He's teaching them, hey, I don't know who revealed this to you. It must have been my Father in heaven, Peter, that, that revealed this to you. But I want you to know that I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to bury the gates of hell underneath my church. He goes directly to the fortified area of evil on the earth. He goes to the sickest place on earth, the most sin-defiled place on earth, the most idolatry-filled place on earth. He goes there and says, this, this, this is a great location to build my church. Now, in our culture, we would say, well, you know, you know, what's the growth rate in the area? You know, what's the, what's the per capita income in the area? Like, what's the marketing plan in the area? Like, in our culture, we think of the church as a business to be built. But Jesus looks at it as an army to be released. And he goes directly to the heart of Satan's 
castle, his place of worship. He goes right there and says, listen, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And that word prevail is terrible because it's not actually in the Greek. It should be in the gates of hell cannot withstand it. Because I don't know about you. Me, me and RJ actually yesterday, the girls were on a girls trip to Birmingham for volleyball. I told RJ, we'll have a guy day. So we went to the Cypress Creek gun range. We saw some guns. We came over here to shoot a bow. I just bought from Will Clater. RJ told me, oh, I can shoot a bow. I'm, I'm stronger than you. I'm tougher than you. He spent all morning trying to pull the bow back and couldn't get it back. Right? So I'm like, oh, yeah, you're a tough guy. You're 15 and 160 pounds. You're real. Oh, I can bench more than you. I said, but you can't shoot a bow and arrow. And so we're going back and forth. You know, we, we shot some guns. We shot the bow and arrow. We did all these things. I've been in the Air Force. I've been uh, hunt. I've seen, you know what I've never taken to go hunting with? A gate. You know, in the Air Force, they trained us on the M4 and some uh, 9mm. They trained us on different weapons. We have airplanes and tanks. No one ever gets issued a gate. You know why? A gate is not an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon. And so Jesus isn't saying, enemies, the gates of hell should not prevail against you. He's not saying the gates of hell are coming against you. He's saying the gates of hell cannot stop you. Gates are defensive weapons because the enemy knows that the kingdom of heaven is advancing into all the dark areas of life. And the kingdom of heaven shall not be stopped by some gates. You have the keys. He says in the same scripture, you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That whatever you bind shall be bound. Whatever you loose shall be loosed. He says, I've given you the keys to the gate, but are you using them? It's amazing that Jesus declares war directly on Mount Hermon. He doesn't declare war on Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. He declares it in the territory of the enemy, which means God expects us to always be taking and occupying more, more ground or more territory from the enemy. I think it's interesting that Jesus is also saying that the church should be on the offensive, not the defensive. When I've heard this scripture preached, I've heard people preach it from the point of view of, of you know, you know we, can, we can withstand every attack of the enemy. You know, if the enemy comes against you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. No, Jesus was not talking about us retreating and hiding out and hoping that the enemy doesn't advance into our territory. He was encouraging us and inspiring us to move into his territory. And so what I think what God was saying to the church is he wants the church to be on the offensive, not the defensive side of the ball. He wants the church to be influencers, not the influence. God wants the church to be the change of the world, not to be changed by it. God wants the church to raise the standard, not lower the standard. God wants the church to advance forward, not retreat backward. God wants the church to be a city on a hill, not a community in a bunker. That's what he was trying to tell his disciples. And when you see, as soon as Jesus dies, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he pours out his spirit. The disciples never stay locked up in the upper room. They never stay locked up in the church. They go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe and obey everything he taught them. So it's amazing to me that as a church, we just want to retreat back. And protect our culture, protect our ideologies, protect our behaviors, protect our ideology, our philosophies. And Jesus said, no, I want you to advance it. I want you to take it with you and go. And so there's, there's two types of eschatology, which is basically the study of the end times. And then narrow it down, there's two types. There's retreating eschatology and advancing eschatology. Retreating eschatology means that you just want to retreat back and hide out until Jesus comes back. And many times it's a rapture theology. You just want to sit back and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Let them do what they want to do. I'm going to hide out in my room and read my King James Version 1611 Bible and just hope that Jesus comes back before there's another election. That's my plan. Like, that's what the Amish do. That's what the Mennonites do. And there's a, there, I think there's a place for that for some people. But that's not what Jesus said he established his church for. And so retreating eschatology means that you actually believe that the gates of hell will prevail. You actually believe that Satan or evil will advance. And you don't believe God has given you what you need to advance his kingdom. See, advancing eschatology means that we've been given a mission to go into all the world and advance the kingdom until Jesus comes back. 
See this with the parable of the, the ten virgins. Five are filled with oil, five are not. I Meaning they're prepared, they're ready, they're doing something, expecting him to return. And so when you, when you realize that we are not called to retreat, we're called to advance, it will change your idea of influence. But what's even more powerful is the word that Jesus uses for church. Everybody say church. There's lots of words he could have used to say church. But Jesus uses the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, depending on how you translate, means gathering or assembly. But it was a word that wasn't from Jewish culture. It was from Roman culture. And they used the word ecclesia to mean people that are called out from the community for the community. There are people that they'd call, almost like the Senate, where they'd call them out. They'd, they'd say, hey, I want, I want Bobby to go. I want, I want Jeff to go. I want Wayne Stanley to go. I want y'all to go, and I want y'all to talk about the issues of the community, come up with solutions, and actually change the community for better. And so when Jesus says, and my ecclesia, or my gathering, or the people I've called out, should come up with solutions to make the community better. It's almost political in its mindset that the whole purpose was he's calling them out of the world to change the world. Now, he could have used the word for prayer meeting. He could have used the word for, you know, worship center or, you know, Bible teaching center or rabbinical school. He could have used lots of words, but he chose this really unique Roman word to meaning a group of people that were chosen and called out to make the world a better place. And I believe that's what we're called to do as the church. We are called out from the world to change the world. Not to be changed by it, but to change it. And for so many centuries, the church actually had this. Like the church was the most influential people on the face of planet Earth. When you look through church history from the beginning to the end, even this small group of 12 to 120 uneducated untrained disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately began to influence the culture around them. You look through church history, orphanages and foster care was not a governmental program. It was started by the church. Because the people would have babies, they didn't want them, they'd leave them on the street. And the Christians knew that everybody was born in Imago Dei, in the image of God. They'd come and they'd rescue the babies and raise the babies themselves like their own. They started orphan care and foster care. Hospitals, the Roman culture, they didn't have hospital care. They'd come to your house and treat you in very barbaric ways. But the church started hospitals to bring the sick in and lay hands and anoint with oil the sick and pray that they were delivered. Like they started hospitals. Universities were invented by the church. You go through over and over social benevolence and compassion ministries, social welfare. It was all started by the church. The sciences and the maths were established and pushed by the church. The arts and creativity and music were established and founded and pushed out by the church. At some point, the church was the most influential people in the world, but now it's a bunch of teenagers named Cristiano Ronaldo and Charlie D'Amelio, Jake and Logan Paul. The church has lost its influence. And I think we've lost our influence because we've been so there's two extremes I think we've been on. One, I think the church has been so caught up in being growth-oriented, numbers-oriented, that we've diluted our influence in order to have more people come through the doors. We've, we've watered down the truth, or at least pushed the truth in a back door that you, or back closet you'll get to later to try to make it like we're just like the world. Could you imagine Jesus being on Mount Hermon and saying, hey, like, let's not talk about you know, the keys, the death, hell, and the grave, or let's not talk about the Holy Spirit because you know, these people may get offended by that, or you know, they may not like that. You know what I've realized? Demons don't like any truth. And if you view the world as everyone's saved and everyone's in the kingdom of heaven, that may work. But guess what? There is no gray area. It's light versus dark, dark versus light. And so the only way you change dark is by shining the light. And so you can't be growth-oriented. I feel like we've detrimented. We have bigger churches than we've ever had, but there's fewer Christians in America than we've ever had before. We have less influence than we ever had before. The other side is fundamentalism. We're so busy arguing about genealogies and theologies, iotas and dots and commas and periods in the, in the scripture, that we're so busy arguing about these little details, we're no longer influencing the kingdom. Could you imagine Jesus at Mount Hermon say, 
well, you know, that, that iota is in the wrong spot. If you really move that, it actually means this. And, you know, John Calvin actually said this. And, and this person said this. No, no, no. They didn't argue about theology. You only start arguing about theology when you stop doing the mission. No one's ever been on a battlefield in the middle of war and they stop to argue about the battle plan while people are shooting at them. And so the only time church people argue is when they stop doing the mission. When you're on mission, you don't have time to gossip and divide and argue and and cuss and do all the other stuff. You don't have time because the mission, you're at the gates of hell. If I stop, the gates of hell may prevail. So that's what Jesus is trying to say, that the church needs to have its influence back. The church was created. You were created to have influence. Kingdom influence. Heavenly influence. Wherever God has placed you. And he wants you to use it in the most profound way. You see, you can't be an influencer of the culture if you're always being influenced by the culture. In Genesis 1, 26, 28, you can turn there. I'm going to be there the rest of the time. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it's how God starts creation as being Adam and Eve, as being influencers of the world. The Ecclesia here in Matthew 16, I believe, is where God is reestablishing that, saying, listen, I created the church to be an influencer of the world. And then you go to the Great Commission, which Jesus, again, is saying, go into all the world. These three are connected. God creates a commission of influence in Genesis 1. The Hebrews, the Jewish people, lose it because they're so caught up in the world system and fundamentalism and all these other things that Jesus reestablishes that Matthew 16 says, no, you are influencers of the kingdom. To then Matthew 28, where Jesus is about to leave, he says, no, no, now I want you to go use it. He trains them, and he says, I want you to go use it. Genesis 1, 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Everybody say dominion. Dominion, power, authority over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Everybody say blessed. It's amazing. God starts with blessing. He didn't start with commandments. He didn't start with restrictions. He starts with blessing. And God said to be fruitful. Everybody say fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. And the good old King James says it this way. And God blessed them and God said to be fruitful multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl there and over every living thing that moveth on the earth. God is a God of influence, and he influences through his people. I love these four things. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and subdue. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and subdue was the cultural mandate for Adam and Eve. Before he even gives them the mandate, God blessed them. You know how powerful it is that every time before God requires a greater level of obedience from somebody, before he sets his commandments before somebody, he always blesses people first. Jesus, before he starts his ministry, he's baptized, and God blesses him, said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus started from blessing. Adam gets created as soon as he's blessed. He, he, as soon as he's created, he's blessed, and blessing is a public form and declaration of God's favor on your life. But it's also the empowerment to prosper or succeed. When you bless somebody, you're trying to give them power to be a blessing to success, to success and to prosper. And Jesus and Adam, both of our father figures, were blessed before God ever required anything from them. Do you realize? I hate it when people start talking about, you know, God, Christianity is just a f- bunch of laws and, and, and religion and, and don't do this and do that and don't do this. No, no, no. Before God ever, ever said anything about any requirements, he blessed them. And in the order of priority, God's blessing is his highest priority. That God is always looking to give a blessing. And we as people, before we even move forward, we need to understand that if you don't start with a blessing from God or God's approval, you will work your tail off trying to get that approval or that blessing from everybody else. 
If you don't get it from God, men, you need to hear this. If you don't start with this blessing from God your Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. If you don't get that, you're going to try to get it from your boss, from your wife, from your kids, from everybody else. You're going to try to work for approval because you're not made to work for approval. You're made to sit at the feet of your father and get his approval. And so, fathers, you may want to go home and tell your sons and your daughters, listen, I approve you. I bless you. I love you. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. We start from blessing. If that is missing, people will die trying to find it from somebody else. And he starts with blessing. He blesses them. Then he says four commands. Be fruitful. Be fruitful. To be an influencer, you must accomplish something. If you're going to be an influencer in culture, you can't influence the culture if you don't accomplish anything. Could you imagine? See, being fruitful is not just succeeding, but having a fruitful marriage, fruitful family, fruitful ministry, fruitful job, fruitful business, fruitful schooling, whatever it may be. The more fruit you have, the more people will pay attention. And could you imagine trying to tell the world, and this, we saw this, you know, 10, 15 years ago, no, gay marriage is wrong. Gay marriage is so sinful, it's wrong, which I agree, it's completely sinful and wrong. It's, but at the same time, the Christian church, there was no fruit in our own marriages. You know, you know gay marriage is wrong, but you know, I've had six divorces and that's cool. No, so what you're saying may be true, but the fruit validates your truth or it denies your truth. And if you want to have influence, your truth and your fruitfulness must be lined up together. And the more fruit you have, the better influence you'll have in those around you. Genesis 2, he actually says this. He says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God places each and every one of us in a garden to watch it, to work it, and keep it. God has placed you in one of those 12 domains. He's placed you somewhere to work it to keep it, to cultivate it, and produce fruit in wherever God has placed you. He hasn't called you to just exist at your job. He hasn't called you just to exist in your classroom. He hasn't called you just to exist in the locker room. He hasn't just called you to exist in your doctor's office. He hasn't just called you to exist at the hospital. He's called you to be fruitful. And there's a difference between faithfulness and fruitfulness. You can be faithful But that doesn't draw people's attention. People are drawn to fruit. They're they're drawn to fruit. They're they're drawn to the fruitfulness of you actually producing what you say following Jesus should produce in your life. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things there is no law. The question, Christians should be the most fruitful people on earth. How fruitful are you? If we're going to be the influencers, we have to be fruitful. One of the things we, we, it just kills us at Dream Center Academy, even in West Florence, is it's where we'll ask the kids in the first couple of days of DCA, so like, you know, who's your role models? And the kids will list off three or four drug dealers first. You know why? Because they feel like the drug dealers are more fruitful with their lives than the people that sit at home and not do anything. And so if you want to have influence, you have to have some fruit hanging off the limbs of your life. And if we're going to be influential church, we have to have some fruit. Secondly, it says you have to multiply. So be fruitful and multiply. Multiply to be an influencer. We must multiply our blessings. Meaning that God has blessed you with something. He's given you a gift, a talent. He's given you something, resources, a business, a family. He's given you something. God has not given you anything for you to hold on for yourself. Everything God gives us, he gives us to multiply. God is a God of multiplication. He is never a God of just holding on retreating back, and this is mine, this is all mine, I'm going to use it for my benefit or my advantage. The spiritual gifts are not yours, they're the Holy Spirit's gift. He wants you to use them to multiply the blessings of the kingdom wherever you're at. The the talents he's given you is not your talents, he wants you to use them to be a blessing to others and multiply them. See, and we get it stuck, we think, if I just hold on to what I got, I'll keep it. I will tell you, whatever you hold on to, you will lose. But whatever you give away and share, you will keep. 
says this in Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted them to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, poverty mentality, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made you five talents more. His master said to him, this is heaven language, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But then he who had also received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant. See, it's not the fact that he was faithful. He was faithful to what God gave him. He kept. He maintained what Jesus gave him. He maintains the talent. He maintains the gift. But Jesus doesn't condemn him for faithfulness. He condemns him for lack of fruitfulness. And he says, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming should have received what was at least my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is strong. And what that's saying is, God expects everything he gives us to be multiplied for his purposes. Even, even your salvation. When God saved you, he wasn't just trying to save you, he was trying to save the people through you. He was trying to save your kids through you. He was trying to save your cousins through you. He was trying to save the people at your workplace through you. Do you realize God's big mind and big scheme and big strategy that maybe, just maybe, you're at your job, not because he wanted you to have a bigger paycheck. You're at your job because God wanted to save some people through you, and he knew that back when you were six years old when you got saved. I'm going to save this guy because in 30 years he's going to work at this factory, and I'm going to use him to reach this guy so that guy can reach his family. And God has this whole scheme of ancestry salvation. And he's a God of multiplication. So the talents that you have, the gifts that you have, everything you have, what are you doing to share it with other people? See, we, we, we think spiritual maturity is biblical knowledge. Well, if I know enough of the Bible, then that's maturity. You know, if I can know this scripture, I know this scripture, you know, I give good church tenets, and, you know, I give a little bit. No, no, the Pharisees did that. See, spiritual maturity is not Bible knowledge. Spiritual maturity is reproduction. See, spiritual babies need somebody to feed them constantly. Spiritual babies need somebody to feed them with a bottle. Spiritual babies need milk. Spiritual babies need formula. They need baby food so they can spit it back out over you and it smells like that for three weeks. Spiritual babies need to be coddled. Spiritual babies need to be comfortable. Spiritual babies need to be laid down and put to bed. Spiritual babies need to be picked up. Spiritual babies have to be coddled and coerced and all these things. And half of the American church is nothing more than spiritual babies. And we started building churches that were nothing more than nurseries to keep babies comfortable, to feed them bottle-fed milk messages, and we wonder why they're no longer influential in the community around us. They don't have the courage or the strength or the ver words or the vocabulary to push back darkness around them. Spiritual children are much like spiritual babies. They have to be coddled. They have to be given. They want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want this, I want that. I want this form of worship. I want this class. I want this, I want this, I want this. And they just want, you have to, when you tell a child no, demons come out. You know, you've seen them at Walmart when they're checking out the candy aisle right there at the cash register. Demons manifest all day long. <laughs> Spiritual young adults are people that, that know the word. They can eat the meat of the word. They know how to process the word. They know that, but they haven't reproduced yet. 
See, spiritual maturity, when you come into adulthood in the kingdom, is when you've started having spiritual children. And God, I believe God measures you by how you multiply, not, not just physically, but how you multiply spiritually. Be fruitful and then multiply. But then he says, but replenish. And I love this one. To be an influencer, you must add value to others in the community around you. Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish, which means to restore or renew. Meaning God knew that the community, the culture, the world would be, start to decay. It would be absent of some things. It would be void of some things. And the church would replenish the world or replenish the universe or replenish the cosmos with heaven. Like he established heaven on earth in the garden, but God knew that it would, it would get away from the, the heavens. And so God said, I'm going to bring my church to replenish it. So a couple years ago, we were campus pastors at Bowling Green. And a guy, so I was in the Air Force, and a guy who's a pilot said, hey, a couple of us pilots will go to Fort Knox and do role playing like once a month if you want to go. And I was like, man, I'm down. So go to Fort Knox. No lie, this is like 2010-ish. They gave me a turban. So I'm a six foot three, 210 pound, turban wearing, safety glasses wearing, supposed to be jihadist in the heat of Kentucky summer. And they said, we're going to do this role playing thing. So I want you in this vehicle, in this vehicle, if you know what simunition rounds are, nothing more than like actual ammunition with paintballs in them. My vehicle is covered in simunition rounds. So I'm like, they didn't tell me I was going to get shot at. Like, that was left out of the little contract thing I signed. They said, we want you to drive this vehicle. Y'all are in a, in a convoy. You speak no English. You only speak Arabic. And at this place, we want you to pull over like your car's broken down. Pop the hood. You speak no English. When they ask you what's going on, you just throw up your hands. You don't speak any English. I said, I've got that. So we start going to this convoy. Big MRAPs and tanks are in front of us, behind us. I'm in this little minivan with simunition rounds all over me. There's a guy with me. And we get to the spot we're supposed to stop. At that time, this fake IED blows up, and this minivan rocks back and forth. There's gunfire overhead, and I, the MRAPs start taking off, the tanks start taking off, and the buddy said, we're supposed to stop right here. I said, no, we are not. And we just kept on driving. And what was the point of the training? Because our soldiers have to go to Iraq and Afghanistan, and a convoy is how they take the supplies or resources from one place to the people who need them. And if you know anything about war, war is not one on the front lines. War is one in logistics. Who runs out our resources first? Who cuts off fuel supplies first? Who cuts off food and water supplies first? Who cuts off ammunition supplies first? And in the kingdom of heaven, that is the replenishing of the front lines. In the kingdom of heaven, we're called to replenish the world with the resources of heaven. We are a convoy of hope to the world around us because the world is void of hope and the church is supposed to replenish it to the people around them. The world is empty of love and the church is supposed to bring love to the people around them. The world is empty of joy. We're supposed to bring joy to the front lines. The world is empty of peace. We're supposed to bring peace in the midst of the storm. The world is empty of mercy. Guess who should bring the mercy? The church should bring the mercy. The world is empty of truth. We should be the ones that bring truth and God wants us to be the convoy that replenishes the front lines of the world with the things of the Spirit. And so when you go to work, you're there to replenish something. When you go to school, you're there to replenish something. When you go to your job, when you go to your neighborhood, you're there to replenish something. But he says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and then subdue it. So it kind of escalates I'm being fruitful, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, multiply, yeah, I can do that. Replenish, yeah, that sounds good. I, I love taking people water when they're thirsty. I can do that, but subdue it. It's a little bit more volatile. I mean, subdue it to be influenced, we must stand for something. Because the word subdue actually means to prevent something from decay. Meaning the world is in decay. The world is a garden that you're working is full of weeds. Somebody has to be the people to pull the weeds out. The world is full of evil. Somebody has to be the one to say, whoa, no, 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 that, that, that's, that's evil. Somebody has to be the one that brings light into the darkness. See, the church is not just called to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish. It's also called to be the light of the world and to shine the light in the world. See, you can take that scripture, we're called to be the light of the world, not the light in the church, 
the light of the world. And he says, your job is to subdue it, to suppress evil, to push darkness back, to slow down the advancement of evil, to push back the gates of hell. We are called as people to stand up for something. But we don't. I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm not saying be the guy on Facebook that everything that happens in the world, you think you're the political commentator of heaven, that you're representing H&N, Heavenly News Network, and you think you're supposed to be one commenting on everything. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying maybe at your work, when somebody's being mistreated, maybe you're the one who pushes that back. Maybe in your classroom when there's a, when there's a student, who you can see they're, they're dealing with depression and anxiety. You're the one that pushes that back through prayer. I'm saying that we are called to push back darkness. And I'll be very honest with you. The world will accept you as a Christian, will accept you as a believer, will accept us as the church, as long as we tolerate the evil that's in the world. But the moment you refuse to tolerate evil is the moment you become a bigot, hateful, evangelical, right-wing, Trump-supporting bigot. I don't have to be any of those to say something's wrong. I don't have to be any of those to push back darkness. I don't have to be any of those to push back evil. Being a Christian has nothing to do with your political affiliation. It has everything to do if you bow down to evil or you push evil back. And the church for centuries was the voice of truth that says, no, that is not the way. That is evil. That is not loving. That is hateful. But at some point, the church wanted to fit in more than it wanted to stand out. And if it wasn't for the church, tons of stuff would still exist. Slavery would still exist if it wasn't for the church. You know, some people say, well, no, the church started slavery. No, the church didn't start slavery. That was a secular thing. But it was many, many faith-filled, spirit-filled believers that were they lead in the abolition movement. William Wilberforce, who was in England at the time, was saved through the ministry of John Wesley and and George Whitfield. He was saved and he saw the sickness of slavery in Great Britain and the United Kingdom. He saw it, he hated it, he despised it. In his journal, he talks about being sick to his stomach when he saw the evils of the slave trade. And God raised him up into parliament in the United Kingdom. And he used his place of influence to subdue the darkness. He didn't use his place of influence to get more followers. People hated William Wilberforce. This is before the Civil War even happened. 1803, 1807, he finally gets the law passed that they banned all slaves, all slave trading in England. And then the day that he died, I think 1833, 1837, Great Britain outlawed slave trade in all of the colonies in all of the world that were under the United Kingdom banner. One man subdued darkness and pushed it back. I'm saying you have something you can push back. One of my, what's a barbershop when I was in the Air Force? I'm going to close. This barbershop was a little black barbershop close to base. And so if you're ever in the military, you have like black barbershop, the Korean barbershop, and then the white barbershop. If you go to the white barbershop, you look like a Marine. You go to the black barbershop, you look fresh. So I never went to the white barbershop. Black barbershop is Rob's barbershop. And if you know anything about barbershops, it's interesting. Girls have their soap operas, guys have the barbershop. So I go to the barbershop and like everybody's talking trash and they're talking. This one guy's headphones on. Oh, they ain't just cutting. He's staying to himself. He's cutting hair. Going the next time, same guy, headphones on. I find out he's the owner. And the whole time he's got gospel music on, he just cuts hair. And if somebody would start to slip up and cuss in a barbershop, everybody else would be like, whoa, whoa, Rob didn't have to say a thing. Because just his presence was pushing back the darkness. One, one year went by, I'm not even saved, and they're doing an outreach for the kids, like adopt a child thing in, in the neighborhood. And so I went, man, I, I didn't have much. I went and bought a new pair of butter tims, like $129. That's a lot of money for me. Bought a little outfit, some stuff for this kid. Took it to the barbershop, and he started this foundation called Rob's Barbershop Foundation. And it just stuck in me. Like, this guy has a barbershop, but he's ministering to the neighborhood. He's a barbershop, but this place is a place of hope and joy and peace. And I looked it up this week. He, he's retired, sold the barbershop, but he's put all his efforts and attention into the Rob's Barbershop Foundation, where he's taken his influence 
and maximized it for its impact. If we are going to be people of influence, and you are called to influence somebody, you've got to be fruitful where God has placed you. Maybe that means you need to, need to crank up your work ethics a little bit. Maybe it means you crank up your attitude just a little bit where you're working. You need to multiply. God has given you some blessings. He wants you to share and multiply to other people. He wants you to replenish something. When you show up to work, you show up full of hope and joy and peace and love and mercy and grace that you can go and you can, you can resource those people that are void of so much in their lives. But fourthly, there's some evil maybe around you. You need to start pushing back just a little bit. I'm not saying you fight people. I'm saying maybe your presence, maybe your voice, maybe your life, maybe your love can push it back just a little bit. If you would, just bow your head and close your eyes just for a second. If I can have our altar team, our prayer team come forward. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is as true today as it was when Jesus spoke those words. But the problem happens when you think the gates are an offensive weapon and not a defensive weapon. And God has called us as the church to be the ecclesia, the influencers, the advancers of his kingdom in a world that is broken, that is dark, that is evil, and that's fallen apart. And I believe he's called everyone in this room to be fruitful where he's placed you. One of those 12 domains that we have up on the screen the next few weeks, you're in one of those domains. I'm going to teach you how in your domain, how you can be a greater influencer. But it starts tomorrow. When you go to work, it's time to be fruitful. As a believer, you should be the most fruitful employee at your job. It's time to multiply your blessings, not trying to hoard and, and hold on to, but share what God has given you. Maybe it's a word, maybe it's a revelation, maybe it's a prophetic word, maybe it's wisdom, maybe it's love, maybe it's your lunch. He wants you to, to multiply your blessings. He wants you to replenish it. And when you go to work, you're not just going to get something, you're going to give something. But he also has called you to push back darkness and subdue it. Every head belly, every closed. I'm not going to leave today without giving you, if you said, I'm here this morning, and I need to say yes to Jesus. Jesus has been working on me. Maybe you're getting through a, a difficult, rough season. Maybe you've been in a season of habitual sin where you feel like you're backslidden or you're lost or you're broken. And you say, I need Jesus to take this life of mine and give me a new life. And I need to repent and I need to confess. I just want a new start with Jesus. If that's you, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I'm not going to have you come stand up. I'm not going to have you come forward. All I'm going to ask you to do is just simply raise your hand. If that's you, you say, that's me. I just want you to raise your hand real quick. Anybody else? Thank you. You can put up that if you raise them. I'm going to pray. And if you raise your hand, I want you to do me a huge favor. And before you leave, stop by Connection Point in the main lobby. They have a free gift for you just to put in your hand to help you on your journey with Jesus. But, Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for your blessings. And I thank you for a God that goes right smack in the middle of evil and sin and builds his church right on top of it. I thank you for the hope of your gospel. I thank you for the power of your spirit. I thank you for the love of the Father. And I pray your blessings over your people in this place today. Father, for those that raise their hand, I pray that you wash them in the blood of Jesus. Cleanse them of all unrighteousness and sin and evil and make them new in Jesus. And Father, we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.